0: Yale Podcast Network.
1: Hello and welcome to our first episode for the December issue of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale Medical graduate and professional students and peer reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. I am your co-host, John Ventura, a six-year student in the microbiology program.
0: And I'm Wachi Lee. I'm a first-year MPH student in chronic disease epidemiology.
1: And we are honored to have joining us Dr. Stephen Stearns, the Edward P. Bass Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology here at Yale University, to talk about his lab's ongoing research and some of his latest publications on evolutionary medicine. And so thanks very much for coming into the studio today. Happy to be here. So I thought at the begin, you could introduce yourself a little bit and just describe your research interests to our listeners.
2: Well, I uh, have had a career in science now that spans over 40 years, and I spent the first 25 years of that working on life history evolution. Part of life history evolution has to do with the evolution of aging, and the evolution of aging overlaps with certain areas of evolutionary medicine because it helps to explain our susceptibility to chronic disease. So about uh, the middle 1990s, I got interested in uh, an area that was at that point called Darwinian medicine. Uh, Randy Nessie and George Williams had published a book on it. At that point, I was in Switzerland and uh, I was running a program that uh, put on workshops for postdocs and graduate students uh, and faculty around Europe. And we weren't too happy with the quality of the proposals. And I thought this was an interesting area. So I suggested we do a workshop on it and they came up with some money and we had an organizing meeting with some of the top biologists in the world. My main concern at that point was to try to introduce more rigorous thinking into evolutionary medicine because at its outset, it was pretty much adaptation of storytelling without too much rigorous attention to alternative hypotheses and stuff like that. So uh, we put together a really a very uh, distinguished group of people that came together to meet for a week in Sion in Switzerland in 1996. And I was then uh, the editor of the book that resulted from that meeting. And because my name was on the book, people thought I knew something about it.
1: Yeah. That's what it comes down to.
2: So I, had, I started getting invitations to talk about evolutionary medicine and I suddenly had to learn something about it. Mm-hmm. So. And understand Uh, what the term means. And uh, understand what it meant and so forth. So that's how I I initially got into it. I've been in it now since 1996.
1: When you talk about life history, that's a term that comes up a lot, especially in the evolutionary biology. And so I was like, what is it? What does it really refer to when you say, like, life history, studies of life history?
2: Uh, the idea there is to try to understand how natural selection has shaped the major reproductive traits that an organism has in order to solve problems that are posed by its ecology. The major traits that an organism has to work with are uh, age and size at maturity, number of offspring at birth, how big the offspring are, um, how much effort is put into reproduction, and because reproduction trades off with survival, then how long they live. So, actually, one of the key ideas in the evolution of aging is that reproduction trades off with survival. The more you reproduce, the shorter your lifespan. And uh, it turns out that that has a genetic basis and is a very well established trade off now. It's increasingly well understood. Mm-hmm.
0: That's really cool. Could you also go into a little bit about how the concepts of evolutionary biology can be harnessed to improve and rationally design future treatments?
1: And kind of going into the evolutionary medicine.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think it's probably best just to take one step back and answer the question, what is evolutionary medicine? I get asked that a lot. As a matter of fact, I was talking to my endocrinologist yesterday about that. <laughs> <And> <laughs> Basically, evolutionary medicine consists of the study of all of the places in medical science whether it is in research or in practice where evolutionary insights are helpful. It doesn't uh, mean that it's uh, really an alternative way of looking at the world. It's more of a complementary way of looking at the world. It's a way of gaining new insights from a fresh perspective. So uh, Huachi, you asked me, uh, could I talk a little bit about the parts of medical practice where those insights really have started to pay off? And the ones that are, are very clear are in the analysis of why do bacteria evolve resistance to antibiotics and what can we do about it and what will happen if we do something about it? Uh, I think the basic idea there is that Every organism has its own agenda, and if we mess around with them, they're going to react according to their interests, not according to ours, and they will do so very quickly. So uh, as you know, the evolution of antibiotic resistance has a, caused a mounting problem around the world. Multiply drug-resistant bacteria are a major issue now uh, in emergency rooms, intensive care units. Uh, In fact, uh, I was recently in an emergency room and we decided not to have my grandchildren come visit me because we didn't want them picking up any MDR bacteria. Uh, So one of the alternatives to using uh, antibiotics or drugs as antibiotics is to use uh, the viruses that kill bacteria, the phage. And uh, part of evolutionary medicine is now devoted to understanding how to use phage to combat bacterial infections and what the bacteria will do once they start co-evolving with the phage. And that's a fascinating uh, co-evolutionary arms race. On that front, I would like to mention that here at Yale, we have a group, uh, Paul Turner and Ben Chan, who have been developing phage therapy, and they've already dramatically saved the lives of two people who otherwise would have died of infection, bacterial infections that could no longer be treated with antibiotics. So which infection was that? Uh, It was Pseudomonas aeruginosa. And uh, for the one that was here in New Haven, that was a doctor um, who had an implant Uh, for a heart condition, and it had developed a biofilm on it that was infected by Pseudomonas. And Pseudomonas, when it makes a biofilm, is rather bright green. So if you open somebody up in a surgical room and you look inside of them and you can see that bright green, you know that they've got the Pseudomonas infection. So uh, he was basically uh, at the end of his rope. He understood the the situation extremely well. He's a well-informed doctor. He was in his 80s and uh, so he signed off and said yes you can try me for experimental treatment. Oh wow. <laughs> so Ben and Paul uh, developed a very intelligent intervention with phage. Basically what they did was they used a phage that attacks the effluent pump in the hmm. bacterium so that they disabled its ability to process the antibiotics. So they then hit it with an antibiotic. He had to uh uh make a trip. And uh, while he was on the trip, uh, another medical condition occurred. He had to be operated on. When they opened him up, there was not a trace of green anywhere in his body. They could just visually see that he had been completely cured. And he came back. He's – by the way, he's still around and he's doing well. This is now a couple of years down the road. Um, When uh, a young woman in Austin, Texas heard about this – she asked if she would, could also be a candidate for it. She had a different kind of condition but uh, it was an immune problem that she had and she also had multiple drug-resistant infections and she was also at the brink of death. They saved her earlier this year. So um, I'm thinking of investing in their company, which (laughs) there's – I I think this is good stuff. (laughs) So that's one area, Huachi, where insights from evolution uh, can help in concrete treatment. Another is in cancer. Every cancer is an evolutionary process. It's a process of clonal competition of clones that have high mutation rates. And the standard chemotherapy – basically is selecting out all of the susceptible cells and it's allowing the resistant cells to multiply. So if you go in and you do strong chemotherapy on a cancer patient, what you usually see is that they get better for three to six months and then the metastases recur. You try it again, the metastases recur. And after you've done that two or three times, you run out of drugs and then the patient dies within a few months. So the evolutionary insight actually is one that's been developed uh by Bob Gattenby at the Moffitt Institute in Florida. And uh basically what he thought uh was that we shouldn't nuke them, we should farm them. So instead of hitting them as hard as possible, try to if if it if it is a cancer that you can monitor with imaging, so you can see whether it's growing or not growing then instead of hitting it with very strong chemotherapy, just use moderate chemotherapy just enough to keep it under control. And the idea there is that you're doing two things. You're keeping the competitors alive. So the other clones of cells that are competing with the resistant clones are still there. They're kind of keeping the resistant clones under control. But you're also buying time for your own immune system to attack the cancer. So he tried this out first on mice. The results were pretty dramatic and they were good enough so that he's now into a phase one trial that NIH has uh, permitted for humans. So that's a second area. The third area where there really is some insight into treatment is, is associated with a hygiene hypothesis yeah. and the fact that we've, we now live uh, in an environment where we are much less exposed to uh, worms, bacteria, fungi, all kinds of things than we used to be. So we're living in an unnaturally clean world.
1: This is very important to go into. I think this is a also grossly misunderstood, like what the hygiene hypothesis is. Like in a, in a general, like a, in a general conversation about this, especially since I'm like a new parent, I hear this all the time from people it's like, "Oh my, my son has Crohn's disease because I didn't let him play outside."
2: Well, it's interesting because the initial uh, impetus for it were some epidemiological observations made by public health people. Mm -hmm. And the first one uh, was that doctors who work in the tropics don't see much autoimmune disease Hmm. and people in the tropics have worm infections. So it was a correlational kind of suggestion. Mm-hmm. Get rid of the worms. The worms are doing something to your immune system and if you get rid of them, you're going to have a problem. You'll get Crohn's or something else. Type 1 diabetes, for example, which is an autoimmune disease. Right. Um, so— There were some uh, initial attempts to test that. But before I go into them, I'd also like to say that there was evidence coming from other areas. For example, uh, if a child is delivered by cesarean section rather than vaginally, they pick up the bacterial flora of the walls of the operating room rather than of the vagina and anus of the mother. Mm -hmm. And so their guts are initially populated by a very different range of microbiota. And children who are born by C-section are at heightened risk for asthma, allergies, and obesity, interestingly. So we know that our microbiota are mediating a lot of our nutritional and immune responses. And uh, it's pretty clear that one of the major jobs of the immune system is to do an appropriate management of our microbiota. So if they're not given the correct players to manage, they can't do it properly. Um, yeah, there was a Nature Medicine
1: paper two, three years ago that was kind of a proof of proof of principle. It's like where you do a vaginal swab on a newly delivered infant for a C, on a C section, yeah. and I actually did that with my son. He <laughs> was like, well, might as well just give it a shot. I mean the data was hey, not it, bad. It. Like it seemed that it those infants grew up with a more uh, with a with a with a microbiome that was more, more similar in in, in composition to ones that were vaginally birthed. So I was just like, let's just do it. <laughs> no, I know exactly
2: what you do. Yeah, I Yeah, risk. no, I I understand. <laughs> and actually it happened happened to my grandson as well. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, uh, one of the people that I've invited to Yale uh, to talk about evolutionary medicine is Marty Blazer at NYU. And Marty is a real microbiota expert. And his wife, Gloria Dominguez Bello, is also somebody who really has worked a lot in this area. And uh, so when my grandson was born in the NYU hospital – uh, my son took me aside and said, hey, dad, uh, I was asked if we'd be willing to enter a research program here. And I, I, he signed up for it. And I, I said, well, what happened? And he said, well, they put a cotton swab into Lou's vagina while she was delivering by C-section. And then after the baby yeah. was born, I was given the swab and asked to wipe it over the nostrils and mouth of the newborn infant.
1: Yeah. And
2: I said, it must be Marty. But I asked Marty and he said, no, that was my wife. That was Maria. That was her, that was, that was, that was her research program. So I had just been teaching about this in evolutionary medicine, and it was very – it was neat to see that, in fact, the research is going forward. It takes quite a few years of follow-up to do this. And, of course, the control group in that is just saline solution, right? And so, as
1: funny as my, my wife is um, a, a plant biologist, and like her training is in forestry sciences, and she was one of was really enthusiastic about it. was like John, you got to go in your lab, get some sterile fifty pipettes 50 I'm sorry, like uh, f- uh, falcon tubes. Uh, get 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 the Kim wipes. Okay, make sure you get them. Like, everything's got to be sterile. We're gonna get this. It's gonna work. It's gonna be great. And I was like, oh my god, you were the one that really wants to try this out. And I was like, I don't buy. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's funny.
2: Well, let me back up a little bit okay. and talk a little bit more then about the hygiene hypothesis since this since you're interested in it. I'll I'll lead into that by saying there's another very interesting geographical comparison that's between Finland and the part of Finland that was taken over by Russia. Mm-hmm. And currently, uh, it's an area called Karelia and mm-hmm. the people who live in it are called the Karelians. And it's important because they all share the same genetic background. Mm-hmm. They currently speak different languages, but that's only for about the last uh, several decades, since since the First World War basically. And now the Finns have a high standard of living. They have good hygiene. They uh, are – much less likely to be exposed to farm animals and right across the border, you have people with the same ancestry but a completely different culture where there's a lot of exposure to pets and farm animals. Mm. The incidence of type 1 diabetes is dramatically different. You get a lot more type 1 diabetes in Finland than you do in Russia just looking at these two groups right across the border. So it's kind of a natural experiment that's pointing at something that says that it's probably a good idea for children uh, to be exposed to pets for example, and probably dogs are better than cats. Dogs are notoriously dirty and they like to go out and roll around in things and then they come back in. And I can tell you that once when I taught at Reed College many years ago, the students... We're doing a microbiology experiment where they were going around taking swabs of everything on campus, trying to find where the greatest microbial biodiversity was, and it was on the back of my dog.
1: Yeah, it wasn't. It, w- it wasn't the sink. It wasn't it, the toilet. It was the back it was of the my back dog.
0: The back of the dog. The belly button is also yeah, very. Yeah, I kind of
2: wonder. You know, in the, uh, up on main campus we have um, Woolsey Hall, and it has door handles on it, and I've often wondered if you were just to culture the door handles <laughs> of Woolsey Hall, what you would find. I think. I think it would be pretty diverse.
1: The banisters of like the L train.
2: However, let me go on a little bit about about the hygiene hypothesis. Uh, It is one of the examples of mismatch to our modern environment. Um, Once it was noticed that people who were lacking worms were more likely to get autoimmune disease, experiments were done first with mice and then later with humans to see whether or not giving people worms would prevent autoimmune disease. And I'll lead in to that with an anecdote. I recorded in these studios where I'm currently being recorded right now, I recorded a lecture on evolutionary medicine in which I mentioned the possibility of worm therapy for autoimmune disease and I mentioned irritable bowel syndrome and Crohn's disease in that context. After those lectures went up on the web and they're free for anyone to look at worldwide, you can get them on YouTube, um, I got a query from a guy in the Ukraine who said – Professor Stearns, where can I get some worms to help me with my Crohn's disease? And I wrote back and I said, well, listen, I'm not an MD. I'm a PhD. I don't have any right to tell you what proper therapy is. I said, however, uh, I can tell you that there was a fellow who set up shop in California. He had Crohn's disease and – He had heard about worm therapy, so he decided to acquire a hookworm infection by flying to West Africa and walking around barefoot in latrines in West Africa. And he picked up a whopping hookworm infection. By the way, I've seen what they look like because we had a grad student in public health go over and work on hookworm in, in the Ivory Coast and that part of West Africa. And he came back and it's an awful thing to look at. You've got big tracks and scabs on your arms and it's painful and itchy and uh, it's no fun at all. At any rate, he came back and he felt so much better that he decided he was going to collect hookworm eggs from his own feces and market them on the web. Okay? Okay? So this is amateur. There's no protocol for cleaning up. All of the bacteria and viruses that come along with those hookworm eggs, but he was selling them on the web. So the FDA basically caught him and kicked him out of the country. He was a Brit, so they could get him out. Mm -hmm. And uh, he simply moved to Germany and set up shop again. No, actually, he moved to France. He's in France now. If you want to go out, if any of you listening to this podcast want to, I'll bet you can Google worm eggs for... Crohn's disease, or something like that, and I'll bet you'll pick up a guy in southern France who is willing to send you hookworm eggs in the mail. And uh, maybe the French authorities have now caught up with him, which would be a good thing because it's a very dangerous thing to do. So that's my anecdote. That's my lead. That's in. a
1: perfect example of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like the, this misunderstanding of like of the of this hygiene. It's like we got to get real dirty and get real sick to stop getting sick. But it's there's there's a context to this that we should know about.
2: Well, I think the context is that worm infections are bad for you. Yeah, and uh, they are themselves really uh, the cause of pretty serious pathological conditions. Uh, there was another interesting study done in Buenos Aires where uh, a guy was studying um, multiple sclerosis,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and. What he did was he was receiving patients that had early signs of multiple sclerosis and he divided them into two groups, those that had worms and those that did not have worms. And then he followed the lesions in the brains of the patient over a period of five years. And the ones who had worms developed those lesions much more slowly than the ones that did not have worms. And the interesting event occurred about five or six years into the study When the worm infections in the patients that were doing better for multiple sclerosis were getting really bad and so they treated those patients for their worm infections, got rid of the worms and at that point, the lesions for multiple sclerosis in the treated patients accelerated and caught up with the ones that had not been Mm -hmm. treated. However, when you look at the list of the worms that these people had, they were all pretty nasty. And it is not at all clear to me that people were better off with worms and no multiple sclerosis than they were with no worms and multiple sclerosis. It was a short, a double-edged sword and a really tough decision. So where does that stuff stand now? Well, basically what's going on is that people are trying to figure out how worms do it so that they can develop a drug, a therapy that substitutes the worm intervention without the live worm. Mm -hmm. So they're trying to make a drug out of a worm (laughs) that will intervene in some of these really serious autoimmune diseases. So I guess to trace that whole chain of thought back, um, what's the evolutionary content of it? Well, the evolutionary content of it is that worms evolved to persist in our bodies for long periods of time because they have a very – uncertain existence as eggs and larvae and they have to survive in us a long time before they can have be reproductively successful. To do that, they have evolved very sophisticated ways of manipulating our immune system. Some of the ways they manipulate our immune system also suppress autoimmune disease. When. You look at our evolutionary history, we have been associated with worms for hundreds of millions of years and we've only been without them for a few decades. Yeah, that's what I was going to get into. Yeah. So it's very recent that we don't have them anymore. So, it is a kind of mismatch that we're confronted with, but it's a mismatch that uh, where the devil really is in the details, where Yes, it would be good to have the worm's capacity to regulate our immune system in such a way that we didn't get autoimmune disease, but at the same time, the worm is causing damage to us. And so we have to try to figure out a way that uh, we can harness those insights to help cure autoimmune disease.
0: I have a quick question. Is it just worms that we see this and are there other parasites that have observed this kind of synergistic effect?
2: You know, I'm – I am only aware of experiments that have been done on worms in – with worms in the context of autoimmune disease, but I also have uh, read and taught quite a bit about all of the ways that bacteria and uh, viruses evade or manipulate our bodies. And so uh, I think the fact that I can't cite a study that shows that bacteria also do something like the worms do doesn't mean that they don't do it. They might very well do it. It's just that we haven't figured out which ones yet. That's That's a black box at this point.
0: In the future, maybe. <laughs> uh, so in terms of vaccination and resistance to vaccination, in uh, mainly affluent and Western societies, it continues to be a huge kind of bugbear for clinicians and immunologists. So could you talk a little bit about how the concept of evolutionary medicine explains the success of vaccines and how these vaccines impact the evolution of the patho- pathogens to which they are designed to provide immunity? And how do these continue to be successful in light of ongoing dynamic genetic changes at the population level?
2: Oh, boy. That's a long question. <laughs> so uh, remind me of parts of it that I haven't answered yet. I'll launch into, the, into it and, and you can bring me up to date. Okay. Uh, what are the insights of evolutionary medicine into vaccines? Well, I think the first insight is that basically the vertebrate immune system is an adaptation that has been designed by natural selection that uses natural selection as a principle. So that's the clonal selection hypothesis of uh, McFarlane Burnett and uh, he got the Nobel Prize for it. Basically what goes on is that our body generates a huge variety of immune cells each of which has through somatic mutation and somatic recombination has a different set of receptors on its surface. And then it finds out which out of those hundreds of millions of cells actually reacts with the molecules that are being produced by the particular pathogen that happens to be attacking the host right then – And it then recruits those cells and multiplies them into a very large army of clonally identical immune cells that will attack the pathogen. And it sets some of them aside as memory. So what a vaccine does is it comes in with a molecule that will interact with an immune cell and cause a clone to be recruited and multiplied and then set aside as memory so that any time in the future, if that molecule comes into the body again, not in the vaccine, but now on the real pathogen, that memory clone will be sitting there waiting to jump on it, and it will jump on it with rapidly and with great force. In fact, I have often thought that if I were a pathogen looking at the vertebrate, vertebrate immune system... It would look to me like a thermonuclear device. It would be just something that was really going to be nasty to encounter. So I think the first insight of evolutionary medicine is just to say, hey, in fact, the the adaptive vertebrate immune system functions according to evolutionary principles and we can use evolutionary thinking operating on populations to understand the recruitment of the immune cells that provide us with resistance. However, there are a whole bunch of very interesting, much to me, less mechanistic and more philosophical uh, questions that are tied up in that. And the reason I say that is that when we look at the problems of vaccination now, what we see is that some people incorrectly with bad science have been convinced that vaccine, vaccination can cause autism or it can cause other things. And when they defect from vaccination, what they do is they lower the percentage of people in the population that are vaccinated. And when that unvaccinated percentage gets large enough, you can again have an outbreak of an infectious disease that had been brought under control by vaccination. And the two that have been really important in recent years are whooping cough and measles. And if you drop the percentage of kids in an elementary school class that are vaccinated below about 10 percent, the ones that aren't vaccinated below 10 percent, so you have less than 90 percent coverage, you can have a measles outbreak and it's actually fairly close to that for whooping cough as well. As a result of that, if there is an outbreak, the Children that are most susceptible and most exposed are the ones who are less than three months old because they're too young to have been vaccinated and they're the ones who die. So in the Whooping Cough outbreak in 2011 in California, there were 11 deaths. All of them were in children who were less than three months old and who had not been vaccinated. So those people who are telling themselves that they have the right not to have their children vaccinated are indirectly creating a mortal risk for innocent babies.
1: Yeah, for parents who didn't, like, evoke that right. (laughs) Right, and it's for
2: parents who didn't evoke that right to defect. So what this brings out is a very important uh, principle, which has been studied in great depth in general evolutionary biology, not in evolutionary medicine per se, but in general evolutionary biology, which is what are the conflicts between individuals and the group to which they belong and how are those conflicts resolved? And uh, it turns out that we've gone through five major evolutionary transitions since the origin of life and at every one of those major evolutionary transitions, that issue has come up and it has been resolved in interesting ways. And so there are – some lessons from our evolutionary history that uh, are relevant to uh, a a conflict between basically uh, individual decisions and group benefit or group harm. And those individual decisions are things that also describe a tension between people who are in public health and people who are in medical practice. And they come up all the time in that conversation. Uh, they 've been analyzed by Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman, who are behavioral economists, Uh thinking inter-
1: fast and slow, right Yeah, thinking
2: yeah. thinking fast and slow, uh, and Tversky uh, did some interesting uh, sort of psychological experiments on it back in the early '90s but i 'll just give you the bottom line: the, the intervention that works the best is to create a social norm that punishes people who defect. Punishment works. However, if you look at the structure of our legal system, our legal system does not recognize group rights very well. It's all based on individual rights and individual guilt. And so built into the structure of our laws and our courts is a difficulty in carrying out – these sorts of interventions. However, um, I have had students write on this in the evolutionary medicine class and they point out that, well, uh, the public schools will deny admission to a student who hasn't been vaccinated and that's legal in certain states. So that's one possibility. Some of them have gone so far as to say that a doctor could deny treatment to a parent who refused to have their child vaccinated. I think that would probably violate the Hippocratic Oath, and a lot of would be, with you this. know there <laughs> would be that would be a huge moral struggle for anybody who was thinking about doing that. So, I don't think that's going to work. But I mention it simply because. If you're a visitor from another planet and you're well-informed about evolutionary history and the principles uh, that have been in play over that evolutionary history and major transitions and group individual conflicts and things like that, you can kind of look at the vaccination problem as, oh, gee, it's another public goods, public ills problem. These have come up hundreds of times before. Yeah, it's going to be messy. Uh, but in fact, it will never be solved <laughs> and that's kind of a cold way to look at it. I would much rather go into it uh, as an individual who is in, uh, in a community and with uh, improved education and improved communication and uh, improved information in general, simply try to convince people don't listen to the folks who are telling you that vaccinations cause autism. Yeah. That's been refuted abundantly. Identify fraud. Where it's, Identify it fraud.
1: Be able to pick up on it when people are trying to exploit you in some way or another.
2: That's right. Yeah. Facts are facts and we don't get the right to alternative facts that meet our own yeah. personal self-interest.
1: <laughs> no, I, I think that's, a, that's probably the best way to – to conclude on that to be honest because we should maybe shift gears a little bit to uh, uh, another thing that you've written. Another article you've written is about some modest advice for graduate students. This is actually I think important for many of our listeners. So what was that article about and what is this modest advice?
2: Well, a modest – OK. Is for, it, first, I, dear, dear listeners, you can, pick, <laughs> you, can, you can read Modest Advice to gra- graduate <laughs> students on my Yale website. I, each of us on the faculty has a personal website. Right next to it, there is another essay called Designs for Learning in which you can read why I wrote Modest Advice for graduate yeah, heard, students. Yeah. <laughs> right, So th- that's out there and you can go look at it if you want. But let me give you the short version right now. I wrote Modest Advice to Graduate Students in about two hours in April of 1976. I was a postdoc in my first year at Berkeley. I had had a wonderful PhD experience at British Columbia and I was experiencing the Berkeley faculty as being kind of paternalistic and pompous. Mm -hmm. And I had experienced the faculty at British Columbia as being very democratic and enabling. And uh, I decided that what I would do is try to write down what had made me feel pretty successful as a grad student at British Columbia. The essential thing is psychological. It's not technical and it's not really intellectual. It's having the emotional strength to – take control of your own graduate education and not let anybody get in your way. Mm -hmm. So I basically traced out that – the set of consequences from that. The context was that a senior professor at Berkeley was going to be in charge of the incoming graduate student seminar for the next quarter. And he approached me over coffee and said – would I please run the seminar for him the following Monday? It was Friday. Oh, Trevor Okay. <laughs> and I said, I said, OK, I'll do that. But uh, do I have the freedom to do whatever I want? And he said, sure. So I went out and I wrote a modest advice to graduate students. I showed it to my, my friend and co-conspirator Ray Huey and we had a little <laughs> back and forth and we kind of refined it. And Ray actually then later wrote – his own comments on it, which kind of travel around with it. Uh, And I went in to give the seminar. And so I laid out these principles, one of which was you better wake up to the fact that nobody cares about you. You're going to have to take care of yourself and you're going to have to take responsibility for your own education because even though some of these professors you're encountering may be nice people, in fact, they're all extremely busy and you can't count on seeing them. Mm -hmm. So you better get it together and take care of your own life. I was saying things like that and I was kind of looking at my watch as I paced back and forth at the board and I went on through all of the major points that are made in that essay, which is five or six pages long. And there were about four or five of the faculty sitting up in the front row and about 30 grad students in the room. And, you know, I I kept looking at my watch and saying, yeah, I'm really very busy. You know, I agreed to do this, but gosh, I've got to run out. And so when I finished, I just went out and closed the door. And the faculty kind of looked over at my friend Ray Huey and said, "He's coming back, isn't he?" And Ray said, "Nope."
1: Yeah. So when the dust settled, <laughs> when what the happened, dust settled, <laughs> I just walked out
2: <laughs> to make my point. Right. 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 And uh, it caused kind of a local sensation, and it was then circulated as kind of a Sami's dot document by actually by Xerox back in the days before the web and so forth, uh, and it had a. Life of about 11 years is something that was being circulated as hard copy Xerox around the world. And then uh, I was asked in 1987 if I would write it up for publication uh, for the Bulletin of the Ecological Society of America. It was published both there and in the Bulletin of the British Ecological Society at the same time. And since then, it has become my most read and my least cited piece of work.
1: Trevor like a proto-meme in a way. <laughs> yeah,
2: it's available on more than 40 websites around the world in a number of languages. I don't know oh, exactly how many, but it's out there. And I've had a lot of feedback on it. In fact, I've had so much feedback on it that at one point, a colleague with a blog did a sampling of more than 300 people, 300 people who had read it and asked them how it worked for them. And... Um, There's quite a diversity of response on that. So rather than summarize that, and there are positive and negative opinions about it, I'll just tell you how it worked when I tried to apply it to my first two graduate students.
1: Yeah. So how did your life experience affirm this?
2: So I I left Reed College and I moved to Basel, Switzerland in 1983. And in 1984, I got my first two graduate students ever. And I gave them modest advice for graduate students. And basically, I said, listen. I would like you to go out and read widely and think deeply for six to nine months and come back with a proposal that's your own idea that you can defend for an interesting piece of research you could do for your PhD. OK? So okay. giving them complete autonomy on that. One of them loved it and uh, – he came back with a proposal to work on the evolution of sex and it was solid. Uh, he went on to get a number of publications on that. He's had a distinguished career. He's been a full professor for some time at a number of different institutions, both in Switzerland, uh, Denmark, the UK and now back in Switzerland. Um, the other one came into my office. Uh, he had he had written an extremely intriguing proposal. He would come up with a great idea. It had to do with the evolution of parental care. He had found uh, a lake in the Cameroon that had 11 species of cichlids, all descended from a common ancestor about a million years ago. Among these 11 species, there were some that had father-only parental care, mother-only parental care, both parents taking care of the babies, and some that didn't have any parental care at all. Mm. The water was clear. There were no crocodiles in the lake. There was no schistosomiasis, and there was a Catholic mission on the shore of the lake with... A research group from the University of Michigan that could provide support. I said, this is great. This is wonderful. How did you ever find this? I'll buy you a ticket. Go down. Spend three weeks casing it out. That will refine your feeling for what's practical, what can be done. And uh, then we'll talk about it. And on the day, which was the last day when we could get the plane fare back, he walked into my office and said, I can't do it. Yeah. And I said, why? And I, he said, I, I couldn't stand it if it failed. Right, And I said, well, I'm sorry to hear that and uh, let's see what you think and we'll talk further about other possibilities. But he then proceeded to have a nervous breakdown. Mm-hmm. And so he was out of action for about three months. And when he came back, uh, his behavior had changed. He would gotten rather paranoid and he came to me and he said, give me a project that you define. And if it fails, it will be your fault. Oh, yeah. So I gave him one. And it was a tough project. We were doing Drosophila, the the genetic basis for life history variation and plastic responses in life history traits in Drosophila. And he carried out a genetic experiment on Drosophila that was just an enormous amount of work and required some really deep and careful and precise thought. He did a beautiful job. Uh, But – the experience of, of being challenged the way that I had challenged him had so changed his personality that even though he did a great PhD and got a good postdoc and came back and got a job in a medical school, he decided he didn't want to have a life in science. And he left to become a statistician who kept track of the AIDS epidemic in Switzerland. Hmm. So my own personal experience then was that, that really shook me, and I learned quite a bit from that, was that every graduate student is different. Is heterogeneity? There's a lot of heterogeneity. Trevor Burrus, Jr.: Heterogeneity. There. They're not like me, right? But that doesn't mean they're bad. They're just different. And so each one of them needs uh, understanding and respect that is tailored to their own intellectual and emotional makeup. So that's my take on modest advice for graduate students. It's good for some people. It's not so good for others. But it's probably good for everybody to read it and at least understand why they either accept it or reject it because it frames some issues, I think, that everyone confronts. And I do think it's right that the major problem that graduate students confront is not that the research is hard or that it's hard to find a question or something like that. I think their major problem is the psychological nature of the PhD and understanding that they uh, they need to be able to something to accept something which is less than a Nobel Prize.
0: So, in terms of other books and literature, are there any? Is there anything currently that you're reading that you'd like to recommend to our readers to help introduce them to this field?
2: Well, I really enjoyed writing the book on evolutionary medicine that I co-authored with Ruslan Medjatov. Ruslan is a very distinguished immunobiologist at Yale, and. Uh, I just want to give you a feeling for his contribution to it. Uh, The reason I thought that it was actually innovative – most textbooks aren't very innovative. They're kind of reviews of what other people have done. We asked two questions in this book. One is, what is a patient? That's chapter two. And chapter three is, what is a disease? And it turns out that if you look at it from the evolutionary point of view, you see a patient as being something very different than you would if you were mainly trained in molecular and cell biology. Rather than seeing a machine with parts that break and might be able to be fixed by replacing them, what you see is the product of long evolutionary history. uh, And every individual is a bundle of trade-offs. And so any intervention you make is going to have costs and benefits. And... Some of the costs can be rather large and surprising. So it may, it's kind of a cautionary tale. But then when you look at what is a disease, you know, most people at least initially naively think that, well, a disease is something that's caused either by a pathogen or by some genetic problem for chronic diseases. Uh, but Ruslan's insight is that the immune system is a double-edged sword and that inflammation is incredibly dangerous and that an awful lot of the symptoms both of infectious and of chronic disease are the byproducts of inflammation. So that leads one then into a consideration of whether it is better to resist a pathogen or tolerate it because if you tolerate it, you don't have such a strong inflammatory response and you don't cause as much damage to yourself as if you're in a full-out resistance mode. And I think that those are very interesting insights, and there that that one is is Ruslan's, uh right there. Uh, but so I I think that there there really is some merit in this book. I've been using it for teaching now for three or four years, and the students find it very helpful. It guides them into the literature. In terms of what I've been um, reading about recently. Um, my goodness, i have
1: <laughs> i mean read anything really you know
2: every semester, I revise the readings, both for revolutionary medicine and then uh, the next semester for life history evolution, so we 're always reading some classics and some stuff that was published in two thousand and eighteen. My PDF library is over fifteen hundred papers in it, um, so there 's just an awful lot of interesting stuff out there
1: well, uh, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about your work and about your interests and about evolutionary uh, medicine. I want to thank the audience for listening to this episode of the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Journal of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and for Yale Broadcast Center for help with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast. Thanks to our co-editors-in-chief, Helen Byanson and Fatima Mirza and the rest of the YJBM editorial board. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit yjbm.yale.edu. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com or following our Twitter feed with the handle at the YJBM. If you would like to contact us, please email us at yjbm at yale.edu. And thanks very, very much for listening.